Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Nice Girls Reading Naughty Books. I'm your host, Bernadette Walsh, and I am so excited to introduce my guest this evening, Damon Swade. Hey, Damon Bernadette, writes, thank you so much for having me with you. Yes, thank you for, um, thank you for joining me. Um, let me just give a quick little intro about, about you. Um, Damon writes gay romance and LGBT genre fiction. Although new to romance, Damon has written for print, stage, and screen for two decades. His titles include Bad Idea and CD Business. So w- welcome, Dame, Damon, to Nice Girls Reading Naughty Books. How I'm are so you I'm so glad evening? to be here. Thank you so much. Now, Damon um, blew me away in a presentation he gave at the Liberty States conference that I attended earlier in the year about screenwriting and writing and some of his background. So, Damon, maybe we could talk a little bit about your writing journey. You've been writing for two decades. So maybe you, what, when did you start writing, writing and what was your – was it first in screenwriting or, or, in, or in what? I originally, it's funny, I started out as a child actor a bazillion years ago. I was a song and dance kid, and I had a freak voice. I had a four-octave range, and I did shows. I did musicals. I could dance and I could sing, and they stuck me in shows because I was little and sparky and I had a lot of energy. And when I got to my late teens, I had a director say to me, you know you're not going to stay an actor. You have too many opinions, and you have too many ideas. You're going to get bored telling other people's stories. You're going to wind up a writer or a director. And I said, how dare you? That's horrible. I'm an actor. Well, of course, within 18 months, it turned out she was exactly right. A producer came to me and said, hey, I've got a space in this theater. My play is pulled out. Can you write a play for me? And so I had no time. So I wrote a play. Um, basically, I, I did a photo shoot, and I wrote a play to fit the advertising because we had no time to make it for print schedule. And the play was a sellout. It did really, really well. And then I started writing as a playwright full time, and I did that for about eight to ten years. And when you work in theater, um, I was in London at the time, and then I moved back to New York. And when you work in theater, of course, you're always sort of on the margins of the film industry because Hollywood is always kind of dipping into theater to scout talent. And about three years after I moved back to New York City, uh, a play of mine won a bunch of awards, and uh, Tribeca Film Productions, uh, Robert De Niro's company, uh, bought it and started developing it for feature, and then that kind of sucked me into film. And so on the basis of that script, I started doing a lot of doctoring in film, and I got known as kind of a white knight, as someone that could come in and fix things and solve things, um, especially known for my dialogue or for my sex scenes, for my action scenes, kind of judging things up a little bit. And so over time, I mean, really over like a... A, a 10 to 20 year period, I went from being a schmactor all the way into being very much sort of on the business end of things and producing what I, you know, I always say a screenplay is not really a work of literature. It's like a blueprint. And you, when mm-hmm. people say, I don't like to read screenplays, it's because no one wants to live inside a blueprint. But I did learn a lot about show business. And so I'd been doing that for a period of about 14, 15 years, um, where I had stepped away from theater finally, and then for about uh, 14 years I did straight film. And then over the course of that, what I discovered is, oh, hey, this is a really mindless, soul-sucking business where occasionally you can make something great, but often what you're making is something that everyone knows is dreck, but it will pay the bills. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I was getting discouraged, and I was making good money, but I wasn't really sort of feeding my soul. And a friend of mine dared me, and she said, I think you should write a romance novel. She knew that I read romance, and I loved romance, and she dared me to write a romance novel. And I wrote my first romance in six weeks. 
I sold it in two days, and then it was number one on Amazon for six months, and that was Hothead, and that was the beginning of my romance journey. I wrote it on a dare, and, um, and it changed my life because it was so successful, and it was so much fun to, to work on, and the romance community was so exhilarating to be a part of that it sort of redirected my entire life. Um, that's a very long-winded answer, but that's, that's, that's kind of the journey that got me um, onto this phone tonight. <laughs> Well, um, and so you, are you completely out of screenwriting and, and film, or are you taking a little hiatus while you pursue romance You know, I have, I have clients. Um, I have clients that are certain producers that I've worked with for many, many years where they'll, they'll, I'll go in to do small things. Um, and I have people that will call me with problems. I do a lot of sort of lunch meetings where people say, I'm stuck here, and how do I fix it? So I do mm-hmm. a little bit of spot testing on that sort of thing. Um, and in my sort of tenure in scripting, I've worked for comic books, I've done Marvel and DC, I've worked film, I've worked television, I've done cable, I've done network. So I've worked in all these weird corners of the business. And over time, you know, you meet people that you love and you trust and that kind of love and trust you. And so I definitely still have people that I talk with. I definitely still have people that I'll sort of help on things with. But I've really, I haven't stepped away from it completely, but I would say 90%, maybe 95% of my time is really focused on romance fiction just because it's been so liberating and so exciting to work in. Mm-hmm. And so um, screenwriting has a lot of tools you've, that you learn in screenwriting that you can use in romance. That's kind of what you said in your presentation. Oh, absolutely. I started, I, I picked up a book, Screenwriting from the Soul, that mm-hmm. I'd actually bought about 10 years ago, but I never, never, it's one of those things I picked up and I said, maybe I'd like to be a screenwriter, and it just went to the back of my closet. But I, I did, <laughs> dug it out, and I'm in the middle of it now. Um, and I think that may have been one of the books that you recommended that people read. But in reading it, I was like, wow, I wish I, wish I had read this book when I first started writing, because I've been writing since probably about five or six years, because right. to write genre fiction a lot of the bones are the same. And one of the things you had talked about were the beats in uh, in film and how you can translate that into your novels. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Well, I'll tell you, I have – it's funny. I think – I agree with you 100%. I do think that really popular film structure, we're not aware of it, but every person now who picks up a book to read it has learned narrative from watching film and television. They don't learn from reading books. You know, in the 19th century, they might have picked up Dickens or Wharton, but these days they're not, they're not educated – their literature education does not happen from fiction. It happens from film. And frankly, comic book narratives and video game narratives, there are all these different forms of narrative that have become the de facto structure. And so I think as a genre, when you're working in genre fiction, I think it's so critical to be aware of these basic tropes that exist, these structures that exist, because you can use them. They're very, very powerful. At the same time, film and fiction are wildly different. The problems that I deal with if I'm going in to work on a film are so drastically different than the problems I have working on a piece of fiction because film loves externals. It loves physical action. It loves spectacle, right? It loves objectifying bodies, whereas fiction is very internal, and it loves Mm -hmm. subjective action, and it likes character transformation, and it likes actions that are driven by emotional truth as opposed to physical reality. And so I think this is one of the problems that Hollywood has when they get a very, very popular novel and they try to adapt it is that you essentially 
have to do like a reverie. It's like classical music. You have to do a rhapsody on a theme by Dickens or a rhapsody on a theme by E.L. James because what is on the screen can never be the emotional experience of just you in the book. It's so personal. And so, I, yes, I absolutely tell people, go and look at film guides. Just make sure you're using the right tool because a lot of the stuff that film guides do can trip you up as a writer because they can, your books can become very sort of plastic and externalized. In the same way that as, as novelists, when we go into work in film, it's very, very hard to think of character growth and internal states as something you have to trust and leave to the actor because you can't write it in, right? You can't have endless voiceovers saying, well, last week I was thinking about what my mom did when I was four because that sort of backstory and digression is murder when you put it on screen. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. That's right. So the, the actor kind of has to know it, but... Um, but he can't, like you said, have a explicitly say, oh, you know, right. I'm so and angry at my father. And I'll tell yeah. you, I actually, and, and sometimes when I'm talking to people in that part of my life, in sort of the film TV part of my life, I'll say to them what this feels like when I'm writing a novel now is it's as if I am the director, the producer, the designer, and the entire cast, and I'm just a schizophrenic shooting a movie in my own mind at the computer because – Everything that is happening is sort of a bargain between me and the imagination of the reader. And you can go overboard. I mean, you can, I call it mm-hmm. Isabella breathed in, Isabella breathed out. When, and we, listen, I'm sure you have done it. I know I've done it where you're writing a scene and you think, do I need to know the color of the ashtray? Do I really need to know what, if she's wearing pants or a skirt? Because all those details can bog you down. Whereas in film, right. there's no, you can't stop a film. It's going, right? I mean, now we have rewinds, but back in the day, a film happened and it was over in two cans and that was it and so there's a speed and an immediacy to film that people now expect from fiction and that's of course changed what books are it's changed what is possible in genre fiction mm-hmm, mm-hmm. do you think maybe that's why um writing the novella length i think there's a, a lot of people are attracted to the novella length and i actually am very attracted to the novella length my i just released a novella called friends forever and I like, you know, I like the forty, fifty thousand word range. And part of that, um, maybe because we're used to, you know, working. You know, I like the plot to move quickly. And although I like a lot of introspection, I also want things to move, right? And I don't want to talk about the ashtray. Absolutely. Well, um, think about this: when does when does category romance peak in romance? When does it pop up and when does it rise? It's the rise of film. It's the rise of Hollywood film. That as B pictures taught America a film is 98 minutes, it's going to have the following beats, the following things are going to happen, and the world, because American popular entertainment sort of spreads out like like a dandelion fluff across the world, right? That as Mm -hmm. the world learns this narrative form, the appetite for shorter and shorter novels spreads because what do people want? They want an emotional experience that's moving and shocking and surprising and transformative, but they want it quick. They want it in an hour and a half. They don't want to have, again, who's going to read House of Mirth in 1998 or in 2015? It's very, very hard to sit down and, and go through one of those big, meaty, beautiful 19th century novels. You know, like Bleak House, one of my favorite books. I love it. 
But if you tried to read Bleak House with a modern 15-year-old, it's rough. They don't, they don't yeah. see that as a story in the same way because they, literacy means something differently. You know, we think of literacy and we think, oh, it's, you know, it's the squiggles on the page, right? The book is a bunch of paper and there's squiggles on it. But the truth is a book is just like a, tr- it's a medium, right? It's like a transmission device because the idea that Dickens had in his head has leapt like a synapse across space and time. And then I'm having that idea too. And that's amazing. But the book isn't what's doing it. The book, the idea of the book is the real literature. And so when we talk about literacy, that's why I always say comic books, video games, these are narratives. I mean, people learn narrative from that. There's a whole generation of kids that are learning narrative from YouTube. What is that going to do to attention spans? What is that going to do to to narrative in fiction, right? Mm-hmm. And also, even look, people are juggling so many aspects of their life, and and romance, obviously, the target for a lot of romance are women, maybe working women uh, or work or mothers, right, who don't have time to read, you know, House of Mirth, right? They want a quick fix, you know, while the kids are on the soccer field, or they got, you know, ten minutes before dinner's ready, and so. And and they've got their iPads and their phones that they can take right. with them, and so no, and yeah, I you know, really I I have a dear friend named Heidi Cullinan who always says it's an emotional ride. Jenny Cruz used to say this all the time, that a romance novel, and really I I would say this extends to all genre fiction, it's it's like an amusement park ride. Sometimes you want, like sometimes you want a merry-go-round, sometimes you want a roller coaster, sometimes you want something that hangs you upside down and makes you barf, but you, you sign up for a ride. And what is a romance novel? It is certainty, right? There's a relationship, it ends positively. So you know when you get on that roller coaster, you have a sense of what the ride is going to feel like, you have a sense of the emotions you're going to have, but you're going to get off safe. At the end of the ride, you climb out of the seat, you unbuckle, <laughs> you climb out. And so, yeah, if you're, a, if you're a working woman, or frankly, if you're anyone who works, if you're anyone who has demands on your time and you want that emotional fix, why wouldn't you want to look for things that fit in your schedule? And our schedules are packed. I mean, you know, we're all over schedules. But then you also have, and this is what I struggle with too. I, I, in some ways, yes, I know what the rules are for romance. But I don't want to write that romance that's just like everyone else, right? I don't want to, you know. Oh, God, so, no. Yeah. <laughs> so for me, like, I kind of jump around genres. I mean, I've I probably have broken all the rules of the things that you're supposed to do when you're, you know, starting a, a writing career. Like, I've written women's fiction. I've written contemporary romance. I've written a paranormal romance. And, you know, and sometimes I have happy-ish endings, you know, mm-hmm. not always a happily ever after. And so, you know, but I think sometimes you have to know the rules and then know when you're breaking them and why you're breaking them. Well, you know, I always tell my – oh, no, sorry, continue. I apologize. No, um, and that's why I I thought what was so powerful about your presentation was, you know, here are the the tropes, as you say, and here are the bones that you can use. But don't follow them blindly. You know, use them. As a tool, you know, and otherwise, like you said, if you, if you, I think if you follow the rules too closely, your your writing is bland. And I think we've all picked up the romance writer oh, novels, and sure. we're like, yeah, I know where this is heading. And it's not, and it's, and that's fine if you know eventually, yes, the boy is going to get together with a girl, or the boy is going to get together with a boy. But um, you know, you're going to get there. But it, you know, you want to take them on a bit of a journey. And we've all been there where we're like. Yeah, I know how they're going to get there, too, and I don't even want to finish this. Well, you I, don't want I to be in that scope. I either. always say to my students, there is a line between form and formula. 
we right. need like sonnets need a form roses need a trellis you need you know if you want to get to a certain level in your life you need a ladder or stairs there has to be something you can climb and so a form should be something that elevates your craft it's something that actually lifts you up and gives you somewhere to go but the minute it becomes formula the minute time the minute you're devolving into cliches regurgitation any time that anyone could have written the book any time that a book is interchangeable any time that someone closes the book and can't remember what it was about, well, then that's hackery. I, I, this, and this is cruel, but I will often say that there is a world of difference between a book that is written and a book that is typed. And I think a lot of times what we see is people that are like, ah, I can make a buck, and they type a book. They type out 65,000 words, and they send it to a place that's happily willing, they're completely willing to put out a, a piece of typing, and they publish the typing, and there are people who read it, they're like, well, they were attractive, because you have like two underwear models that have a zillion dollars, that have fabulous sex and mutual orgasms every time they see each other, and th- that piece of typing satisfies enough people to make some money. But those books aren't the books that change the world. And I'll tell you something. Romance changes the world. Like, you actually can change things with a book. And we've seen that. I mean, in publishing in the last 15 years, we have seen books that have completely electrified, galvanized millions and millions of minds and hearts because of what they showed people about possibility. Now, I remember I was sitting on a panel somewhere. This was one of those panels where, like, I was the lone romance person. And we were sitting on the panel, and they were like, oh, you know, doesn't romance teach people to want things that are unrealistic? But my response was, no, it teaches people to want things at all. It teaches people to expect more out of their lives. And like, no, you can't live in an ideal world, but you can definitely ask for a world that is more ideal. And so I feel like there's, this is again where I would say like romance is the literature of hope. Like how does it elevate us towards hope? And so if you're talking about formula, what's hopeful about formula? I mean, who wants to read some anodyne lullaby, right, that goes nowhere? But form, like something and who wants to write it? I mean, unless it's like you said, it's just for money. But oh, I mean, for me, for I, I you know, I get more Holly out of my books than my readers do in some sense because it's the whole. It's it, you know, you've always been in a creative um, space, but I haven't been. You know, I've I've been practicing law for almost twenty five years, and so it's only in the last five or six years that I was able to open up and you know explore that side of my brain and it's been such a ride and even if no one read my books i've you know i the experience of writing it was in some ways enough now of course that's the first draft like obviously i'm i'm out there and i'm trying to get people to read my books and that's why i've i'm not just hiding them under my bed but you know to just write formula, that would, to me, just be a waste of my time. I have better things I can do with my time. Well, this, so, is, well, yeah. this is actually how I made the cross. I knew that I was in trouble in my film writing when I started actually thinking. I would walk into a room, and I would think, I wonder how this producer is going to screw this up. I wonder how this project is going to get compromised. I wonder when they're going to cut corners and tell me to take this woman's breasts out. And I, and I, I remember being in a meeting. This was on a, a play of mine that had been optioned for film and everything else. And I had a meeting, and it was set up with a very, very high-end star and a very, very fancy group of people around it. And the lead producer for the company that had bought the thing turned to me and said, the, the actress involved was 34, and she said, I think her tits are too small and she's too old. And I, rem- I remember thinking, oh, oh, no, 
I'm about to become that person. Like, I'm going to be the person that sat in the room and said, yeah, let's definitely go for a 19-year-old with 36 triple Ds because that will make a better movie. And, I, and in that moment, I saw this is how it happens. Like, this is when the poison apple is handed to you and you bite or you don't bite. And I think it's very easy when the money is put in front of you. And we are, oh, listen, art is a hard dollar, right? We're all trying to sort of struggle and dream on paper. And it's very hard hard when someone hands you that apple not to bite down. And so you decided to, to go your oh, own I, way. That was, that was, I would say that within ooh, six months of that, I was writing a novel <laughs> because I thought this is, this is going to go badly. This is not the way I want to end up. I do not. Well, actually, what I thought of was the actress who had originally championed the project, who is such a talented, beautiful, wonderful human being. And I, all I wanted to do was see her do this role. And as soon as I heard the people who she trusted sandbagging her, I thought, this is not who I want to be. This is not the thing I want to do. This is not what I signed up for. Like I originally, because it was a slow, slippery slope, right? It started out with, I'm a playwright. I'm doing this for art. And then it was, I'm a playwright. I'm doing this for art, but I'm doing it for Broadway art because the money is better. And then it was, I'm a playwright, but I'm also doing comics and also some TV and film because it pays really well. And then little by little, it's like by inches, you keep moving your center until you're like, yeah, sure. I'll do, I'll, I can set that scene up. Yeah, sure. We don't really need dialogue there. Yeah, sure. There's a reason for him to take his shirt off. And little by little, you make these choices. And then suddenly, you're the schnook in a, like wearing a pair of jeans and a 1980s blazer with your sleeves pulled up saying, yeah, have your agent call my agent. <laughs> and, and I didn't want to be that. I didn't, I didn't want my life to turn into that. And I was, I was just never what I was going to do. But so, yeah, that was, a, that was a turning point for me, that moment. So, so you so you decided to write this book on a dare, and it was wildly successful. Now, um, I know that you you've worked in a couple of different genres. Maybe you could talk about you know your first book and what genre that was in, and and what you're working on now. Okay, sure. Um, so the first book, uh, Hothead, was a contemporary firefighter romance, and the way that book happened was when my friend dared me. She said, just go, you know, she was like, go write a romance. She said, you know, you're gay, gay, write a gay romance. Gay romance is really popular. And I was like, it is? She said, oh, you wouldn't believe it. it's like the hottest thing everyone in the world is reading. It's this big deal. And I was like, all right, sure. And I tried to think of the most romantic story I could think of. And I had been, this is a long, long, long time ago. I had a friend who went through this terrible dark period of about seven years where she had affairs with married firefighters. This is all she did. And it was terrible, and she knew it was terrible. One night, I was upstate with her. We, I was writing in a house, working in a movie in a house. And I'm writing, and she was upstairs, and they had just finished having whatever, you know, beast of two backs moment they were having. And he sort of kind of clomped down to the front porch, and we're sitting there drinking whiskey on the thing. And we're two guys, and it's midnight, and we're both a little bit drunk. And so we do what guys do. We start telling kind of gross sex stories. And we're done oh, this one time this happened, and oh, you this one time, then I fell down the stairs. And then out of nowhere, there's this long pause, and the guy says to me, you know, I was in love with a guy once. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, yeah. He said, you know, we kind of grew up together. We were really great friends, like we were more like brothers. We went to the academy together. We came through the fire service together. We were in the same house. We were in the same unit, the same hook and ladder. And he went through this whole thing about this guy and how they'd, like, 
gone out. They banged broads together. Like he went through this whole thing about how they were like bonded. And then at a certain point, he started having these really inappropriate feelings for his friend. And they, they had this very weird three-way with his wife and it all turned really dark. And they had this fight and the friend cut him out of his life. And he never, he couldn't tell the friend because he didn't want to say, hi, yes, so we're friends, but by the way, I'm in love with you. And the wife kind of knew something was up. And so they split and he was having this horrible summer. And then 9-11 happened, and his friend died when the towers came down. And he never got to tell his friend how he felt. And when my friend dared me, she said, I dare you to write a romance. I thought, that is the most romantic story I've ever heard. I'm going to give them the happy ending they deserve. And so that's what Hothead was. Hothead was a contemporary firefighter romance about two straight guys that have no possible way to be in love with each other who realized that they are in love with each other. And so that's, that was Hothead. And then Hothead, which was really straight, like, firefighter contemporary, um, was such a thing. It became such a thing. And, and it kind of blew open a bunch of doors for gay romance as a sort of niche inside romance. That it, it, like, like it actually, it's funny, in the last, like, like four months ago, I got a call. Um, Goodreads named it one of the top 100 romances of all time, and they put out a poster, and it's the hothead cover art next to Pride and Prejudice, Gone with the Wind, <laughs> Wuthering Heights, and Sense and Sensibility. I, I crapped my pants. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. But the thing was, I don't, I, I mean, I almost can't take credit because I feel like the gods moved through me. Like, that book just poured out of me so fast. But so after Hothead was done, the next thing I wanted to do is I thought, everyone said, write another firefighter book, write another firefighter book. And I didn't want to be a factory. I, did, I thought, look, you just came out of film. Yeah. Don't make this mistake. And so the next thing I wrote was like this wild sci-fi novella. It was a sci-fi romance called Grown Men about terraforming and eel ranching, starring a nine-foot-tall mute giant and, uh, and a, a runt. Uh, his name is Runt, actually, about this little guy who's a terraformer. And so I wrote this sci-fi romance just to see if I could. And then after I followed that up, I did a, a paranormal about an incubus. And then I did – I followed that up with a contemporary about comic book artists because I used to work in comics. I knew a lot about it. My boyfriend is actually a very passionate comic book fan, so that book, Bad Idea, is really like a love letter to him and to the the fandom that makes comics so powerful. And, and um, anyway, so, so you're the, breaking the new... all the rules too. I'm not the only oh, one. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, no. Like I might. Here's the thing. I'm respecting the form. I am refusing to give anybody formula. When I wrote my Horngate, which is my Incubus book, it's a paranormal Incubus, right? Sex demons. So everyone thought like, oh, it's going to be like big purple penises. And my thing was, no, I'm writing a sweet Incubus book. There's no on-page sex in that book. I was like, I'm just going to try. I want to see if it's possible. And so I wrote, seriously, I wrote a novella with straight-up 13th century formal ceremonial magic, like 13th century Kabbalah, full-on Hebrew gematria, the whole... I was a religion philosophy major, so, like, I really went through... I went to a rabbi to test the Hebrew, but my whole deal was it's going to be a sex demon book, and it's going to be, like, a sweet romance. It's going to be, like, the most tender, delicate, sweet romance, but it will have, like, crazed magical beasts and explosions and, like, ivory hammers and gates, you know, into hell, and it's a sweet romance. It's like a Debbie Maycomber. Now, have your your readers from your first book, have they followed you on, you know, Here's the thing. So you know, it's the funniest. It's it's weird. I mean, you know, the thing with the thing with Hothead is the Hothead readership was so gigantic, um, and it was gigantic in a way I didn't expect. Uh, I I didn't know this at the time because I was so green. Um, I got the book got picked up somehow and handed off 
to J.R. Ward and J.R. Ward's readers. And there is a couple in her series called Quinn and Blay. I have never read their book because someone told me our voices are similar and I didn't want to be affected by it. But I mm-hmm. will always be grateful to Jessica. She, cha- I, don't, I don't know who she talked to or what she said. The fans embraced Hothead. So there would be blogs, and I mean thousands of blogs, where there would be people who only read Vampire Romance and Damon Swade. Vampire Romance, Damon Swade. Shifters and Damon Swade. And so before I had ever written a paranormal romance, I had thousands and thousands and thousands of slavering paranormal fans that were like ready for anything I would write. And what everyone said was they were like, it's for the voice. It's the voice. We don't care. Like you can write anything. You can write in a laundry list and we'll do it. And so it was, again, really invigorating. I came from film. I mean, like, listen, I came from a place where people wanted to murder you if you added two lines of dialogue. And so to be in a, in a world that was so positive and so reinforcing of creative mojo, and all they wanted to do was hear a great story that moved them, that was like, it was like heroin. I couldn't get enough of it because all it meant was just tell me another story, tell me another story, break, you know, break another wall, find another way to, to surprise me. And I loved it. It was exhilarating. So each book has been like a real exploration. It's been a real push into new turf and new territory. I've loved it. Um, and then, the, so anyway, bad idea. And then uh, the thing I just, I'm actually right now doing my final little bitty, bitty edits before it goes into the pipeline. I have a romantic suspense called Pent Up. And that is bodyguard, billionaire, Upper East Side, like wary suit, thuggish brute uh, on the Upper East Side with a full-on slam bang not really Harlequin intrigue, but it really is like classic romantic suspense, like bloody handprints and financial shenanigans and big parties at the Met. So you're trying another another genre. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. That's great. You know what, though? Where the story takes you, it takes you. If you have an idea, I think you should follow it. And like and like you said, I, I, I think you said the voice is what's the unifying theme among your books. And so that's why people who who like paranormal can maybe enjoy your new romantic suspense. So I think that's great, and, you know. And 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 again, sometimes I I go to these conferences and, and you get so much different advice. And and the safe thing would have been to keep writing those firefighter books forever. No, and actually, I yeah. know people that have done it. And the the thing, the reason I didn't was every person I know who, and this is true for actors that I know. I mean, name actors, celebrities who get stuck playing the kooky friend or the, the, like the dominant leading man or the asshole in the corner. Like getting stuck, getting typecast as that one thing can drive you insane. That's true for writers. If you get known for doing like wacky action sequences and you have to write wacky action for the rest of your life, you'll go mad. Because how long right. can you do that before you run dry? And so right. I, I early, and this is going back to when I was in my teens, I had a, a director I worked with who said, what they want is the energy that passes from your mind into theirs. They want the story, right? And so she mm-hmm. would say, you give them an emotional experience that they, they connect with authentically, and immediately they're along for the ride. And so at that point, she was basically saying, like, if you give them a ride, eventually keep changing the ride, and you become an amusement park, baby. Like, you're not, you're not just a roller coaster anymore. You're World. You're Six Flags. And so that was my goal, is I thought – Okay, great. I did firefighters. That's groovy. I want to try something else. Let me see what else. And thankfully, it let it let me do all sorts of things I couldn't have done in film. I couldn't have done in comics because those those media are, are 
entirely defined by budgeting and by distribution and by all these other factors. Fiction is very different because fiction is really a relationship between the author and the audience. You're direct. Right. You're going directly to them. Right, right, right. And for the first draft, I mean, while you're writing it, you're the only person in the world. Like, I don't know That's about right. what you think about. When I'm writing, I only I only think about me, and I only think about the the character. I I tend to write from the first person, and uh-huh. so um, that that character for the for the time that I'm writing that book, you know, as soon as I like put the kids to bed and, and throw some dinner on the table after when it's my time. I'm sitting there, and I'm that character, and I'm in her world, and so, um, and and it's, it depends on where the world takes me. I and I, you, this actually is so inspiring, and kind of um, reinforces what I've been doing, which is Great. I get a story in my head, and whether that's contemporary romance or it's a paranormal romance or it's straight women's fiction, those have been the genres that I'm most attracted to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm going to do it. I'm going to write it. And if a romantic suspense comes into my mind the next time, I'm going to do that too. And that may not be the best way and by following the rules, but I, I, I think, you know, I want to I think it's a hard – I think that's a great is. analogy. It's a tr- it's, I, I always say – it's like my thing about being a film studio or like I'm the Globe Theater, right? Like I sit down and I'm all the actors and the director and the stage and the, and the decorations and the costumer, like all of it's inside my head. And so, listen, if you're going to, like, let's say you're going traditionally publish, you're going to New York, and you say, okay, I just wrote a paranormal, but then I'm going to do a romantic suspense, and now I'm going to do an inspirational, and now I'm going to do an erotic romance, they're going to want to kill you, because that doesn't, that's not how their catalogs work. Their catalog works that once you have a fan base in a certain subgenre, you're going to cultivate that subgenre, and you're going to build, and that makes perfect sense. It really does. But the truth is, what you see now, it used to be they would say, oh, if you jump subgenres, you have to have a new pen name, new website, new pen right. name, new branding, everything new what they're what what i've been seeing what i've been observing a lot anecdotally is people are saying no everyone knows that Nora roberts and jd robb are the same person it's just that the branding between the two is so that if someone feels like they want to read a jd robb book they go pick up a jd robb if they want to read nora they go read nora and so mm-hmm. it's not that she's a different human being when she has a different book on it's the same voice and there are times where they feel like oh i want the jd robb flavor of the voice but it's not like she became a different person. And so my deal is I want, to, I want the voice to keep getting better. I want my movie studio in my head to keep expanding and developing. It's one of the reasons like when I'm, like when I'm reading, right, if I'm prepping for a book, I'll read nonfiction. I read history. I read memoir. I, I will go see weird movies. I go to galleries. I feel like everything I can feed into my head – is just mulch. It's like compost, right? And who knows where the next idea comes from? I think one of the big dangers writing genre fiction is if you just read genre fiction, it's, it becomes incestuous. It's a feedback loop. Everything is so inbred because if you read a series, like we've all done binge reading, but if you read like 45 shifter novels about alphas who were brought low by a feisty female, well, after a while you're going to start regurgitating a lot of stuff right. about feisty females and alphas. And this is when it starts to feel like typing, not writing. I think that's one of the big dangers is how do you keep it fresh and in your voice? I, did a, right. I just did a panel out in Long well, Island. Well, actually, that's a, it's very funny that you say that because I'm very – when I'm in writing mode, I won't read in that genre because, right. you know, I, I want to cleanse the palate. So I will read, like, nonfiction or right, something right. that's completely the opposite of what I'm, I'm reading because – 
actually might like think I write from the first person, so I won't read anyone else's books that are from the first person because I think you're right. Their style can bleed into your style, well, it's, and it's, you don't want It is that. the reason I've never read Black Dagger Brotherhood is because I – I am so grateful to J.R. Ward and all the things she did when I was first first starting out. At the same time, so many people, I mean thousands of people have said, your voices, are, you have such a resonant thing. Like, you're not the same, but you definitely are like in neighboring counties of Romancelandia. And I don't want to ever poach on her voice. I don't want to, it to affect in either direction. I think that's a really difficult thing as a writer. I don't watch TV. Like, I have a whole thing about TV. When I was doing film, I could tell within four pages of reading a screenplay if a person re- watched television regularly or not. I could tell after ten pages if they watched sitcoms or full, like, hour-long dramas because the rhythm is different. Like, the rhythm of the dialogue was different. And this is true in books, too. Like, I'll read books and I think, like, oh, someone watched a lot of sitcoms in the mid-90s because you pick up the rhythm of the jokes and the setup um, mm-hmm. because styles change in film and television and we're not aware of it but osmosis man we pick it up and it leaks into everything we do and so like when I would I would book gigs for film and people would say your writing is so different it's so fresh and I would say that's because I'm not watching the same glop that every other person is watching and that doesn't make me superior it just makes me desperate I'm so desperate to not have my voice blend in with everyone else's because if it mm-hmm. does then I'm just going to be typing and I don't want to do that right Right, right. Now, what did you find was the biggest challenge when you moved from screenwriting to writing that first book? Oh, okay, this is a good one. So the first, oh, when I first, first started, okay, so I've got, I'm, I'm doing this, I'm, I'm on my dare, right, and I've got my story, and my main character, Griff, I knew him instantly, I knew exactly who he was going to be, I was going to, like, I mapped him out, and I did all this swatching. What killed me, it took so long to break this habit, when you write for stage, you know, they used to say when you write a play, you have three stage directions, enters, exits, dies. And so I had always written plays that were very spare on stage directions. When you're writing film, it's a little bit more direction heavy because they want visuals. And so you definitely have more, but a film is 100 pages. You're not, there's not a lot of extra room in there. So like every word has got to be there and it's got to be budgeted for and you have to consider what it, how it affects the production schedule, everything, right? Like if it's day or night, changes the amount of money they're going to have to pay. So you're always thinking of that stuff. For fiction, I had all this room where I had to fill in setting and it drove me insane because I would get tied into knots of like, well, is it day or is it night? Are they outside or are they inside? What is he wearing? Are you, is, he wearing is he wearing boots? Is he wearing sneakers? And so visualizing the actual setting, I'd say for the first week, I was in knots because I was so terrified of, and this is so dumb, spending producer money on the film <laughs> that I wasn't writing because I had gotten this habit of thinking all the time, like, oh, well, we can't do this fight during the day in Midtown New York. It's going to cost too much. But, of course, in a book, I can do that. I actually you went can through do this- anything. Exactly. When I did the rewrite of Hothead, I realized, oh, my gosh, I've written a book with firefighters and there's no fire. Like, I actually had a couple of emergencies, but I didn't have one big fire scene. And I was like, I have to have a fire. Like, I want to show them being heroes. They're heroes. I want to show them being... And so I went back and I wrote an entire... Cha- it's now one of my favorite chapters in the book, but I wrote this gigantic fire. Now, ironically, a year later, Hothead, um, I lost Best Romance of 2011 to a little book called Fifty Shades of Grey. And I'm at BEA in New York, and producers come up to me. Now, the great irony is the producers that come up to me 
ironically knew me in my life as a screenwriter. They had no idea that I was Damon Swade, but they came up and they wanted to buy Hothead for a movie. And they're doing their like, yeah, make you a deal, kind of like Bernie the salesman. And while they're doing it, I started laughing. I said, guys, you got to not hustle me. It's, it's kind of a joke. And they were like, no, no, we want the book. We're going to make the movie. I said, no, you're not. I said, this, this book, to make this as a film, this starts at 26 mil, no question. Probably 32 if you shoot it in two years because of the effects. I said, there's a fire in the middle chapter of this book, which is going to cost you, no question, six million to shoot. There's no way you can shoot this on, the bu- on low budge. And this is gay guys. Like, this is two dudes. So maybe in a while, but you're never going to be able to make this move. And I knew it. I knew it when I was yeah. writing it, that it couldn't be filmed. But that was a real challenge for me. And, of course, listen, I, I still did the thing with the – and I'm, I'm happy for film guys to come and say, yeah, we'll make you a deal. But the truth is a lot of what you're doing in fiction, you do because you can't do it in a movie. You can't do it on television. You have all this freedom. And that was very scary to me initially. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. That's great. Now, in terms of your your fan base, you said especially your first book really exploded. Who are your readers, or do you have a sense of who your readers are? Oh yeah. Um, well, I'll tell you a couple things. One, most uh, I write gay romance in all these different genres, and and most gay romance, the readership is about ninety percent women and about ten percent men. I'm probably closer to 70-30, maybe even 65-35. I have way more men than the average gay romance reader, and really than the the average romance reader. My publisher has many theories about this. I think it's a combination of I'm a guy. I think I have a very male voice that is very accessible for the average male reader. I have a group, get, get this one, I have a group of straight male firefighters that buy my books because they're so raw and sexy and male. I was at a signing, I don't remember where, I was at a signing and this guy comes up, shaved head, and he's there and he has an accent and he says, well, I want to buy three of your books. And I said, three? And he said, well, my wife, my wife read it and he, she loved it and we read it till it fell apart. That, that book saved my marriage. And then I, I bought, I need one for me. And then I'm buying one for the guys at the house. He was the lieutenant in a firehouse. And all of the guys oh at the firehouse God. read it because, get this, they thought I was a firefighter. I actually, one of my first fan letters I got for Hothead was an angry letter from someone who was pissed because they were like, what house are you with? Like, what, what engine company are you with? And I was like, none. I'm a writer. I live in New York. I'm not a firefighter. And he was like, don't be an asshole, man. I, don't be a closet case. I'm being straight with you. Where, like, where, do you, where do you work? What is your unit? And I was like, I'm not a first responder. I swear I'm not. But I had this so I so okay so from Hothead I had a weird and God bless them all a, a very passionate devoted group of first responders cops firefighters EMTs that passed the book around because they thought that I was a first responder. The book also has a subplot about amateur porn. Weirdly, it got picked up in the amateur porn community, and so I have a group of fans that are porn people that are very passionate advocates because they're like, this is so realistic. It's not this. Is, they're not glamorizing porn. I'm like, great guys, good. I'm I'm thrilled by that. And then beyond that, um, I find that I have a much, uh, it's a much more diverse readership than a lot of romance readership, a ton of minority communities, people from like all over the world. Um, so many people in Asia, so many people in South America. Uh, Dream Spinner has my books out now in Spanish, French, German, Italian. I think they just did Korean and Chinese. So the books are kind of everywhere. Um, and 
what's amazing to me is the letters I get from all over the world from the most unexpected people. Because it's, again, you think like, okay, gay romance. Like, who's going to be reading a gay romance? I get fan mail from grandmothers in North Dakota. I get fan mail from straight grandfathers in Laos. You get the, so it's a very, very strange cross-section. What they all have in common is they like the humor of the books. They like the sexiness of the books. They like the kind of raw – the word that they always use is raw and bold, raw and bold. And they love how bold the books are. So the fans – my fans, I can almost spot them down a room. Like they definitely have like a, a, a presence um, in a room. And um, there is a group of people, they tattoo themselves. I was doing an on-camera for a, a, an interviewer down in New Orleans last year. And I was on camera, and a guy walks up and pulls up one leg of his shorts, and there's a picture of, from tat, the tattoo of the art from Grown Men, which is a nine-foot-tall naked bodybuilder wrestling an eel. And then on the other leg, he pulls up his shorts, and there's the naked purple demon from Horn Gate. And then he waggles his oh hips, and he says, <laughs> and then he says, and the magic in the middle. This is a straight guy. But the thing is, what they say is, it's so male, it's so raw, and the, the maleness for whatever reason. And I think, here's the deal, people read romance. Like, straight guys like to pretend that they don't. Yeah. I did a panel at New York Comic Con with Larissa well, Iona. I mean, and are a lot of the writers of gay romance, they're actually women. Is, is, many, is that most, why? yes. Yeah, no, because I know some in my writing group. I was surprised when I first started going to, you know, RWA events. I was like, you're writing gay romance, but, you know, you're a woman. Like, what do you, what do you know? They're well, like, this oh, is, I listen, just research. this is a larger... But I think that probably... I'm sorry, go ahead. I think that the thing, what I was going to say is, I think this is, there's a thing in gay romance, and this is my own, this is sort of like my tinfoil hat theory. I believe that gay romance is actually not about gay people. I don't think it's about LGBT people, although it obviously honors LGBT people and hopefully doesn't appropriate the LGBT experience. But when you're writing about gay guys, like you're, there's issues that come up, coming out, um, the closet, uh, intolerance, whatever, right? There are certain topics that are instantly dramatic. The thing is, when you add the element of a same-sex attraction to a romance, what you immediately do is you eliminate the patriarchy because all bets are off. You don't know who picks up the check. You don't know who holds the door. You don't know who is on the top or the bottom in bed. Everything is negotiable. And so I think, and this is, again, my tinfoil hat theory, I believe for many women, and this has been confirmed by writers who I talk about this, I, I talk about this topic with them a lot, they will say it's so liberating because when I, read, when I read a traditional romance, I get so tired of the woman being rescued or worse in the 90s, we had that spate of, like, ammo belt-wearing kick-ass heroines in combat boots. And then they got tired of that, of, like, the beta heroes with these feisty heroines, like, punching out zombies. And what happens in a gay romance is you immediately eliminate certainty about behavior. And I think it's very, very exhilarating to explore gender in a way that isn't boxed in by expectations. And so I think for a lot of women that write gay male romance – what is what is at work is this liberating power to explore gender and explore attraction and explore arousal in a way that actually goes past what they feel like society's sort of gender norms set up. Do you know what I mean? Now, that's a very wanky way of putting it, but I feel like it's, there's freedom in it, and it resists all these patriarchal tropes, it, and it's and – it, it's, um, it makes for really thrilling reading. I mean, I will tell you, like, my favorite writers in gay romance are all women. And I have a lot of friends that are guys that write gay romance, and I love their books. 
but my go-to favorites, like my comfort reads, the books that the people who are my auto buys, they're all women. And I think it's because they take these crazy and their voices are so powerful because they're unafraid. They have no limits. And that's thrilling. It's thrilling to watch. Mhm. Mhm. Well, that's amazing. Well, I think this is really a great this has been a great interview and 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 you've really given me um uh, insight into gay romance because I have not really read any gay romance, but now I now I have my go-to author, so I'll have to definitely <laughs> check that out. Well, listen, um, anytime you want a book, it's yours. You say the word, yes. I got you hooked up. <laughs> now uh, I know that you also do a lot of um, presentations. Do you have any events coming up? Are you going? Um, I to do. The, um, um, I... RWA conference. I definitely going to. I always go to RWA. I love RWA, and um, you know, I don't know if you know, but this year is the first ever RWA's Rita Awards. The first ever LGBT noms. Um, Heidi Cullinan is up for Best Contemporary. Amy Lane is up for Short Historical. It is the first ever gay romance nominated for Rita's, and there are three this year. And so they they are. Uh, you know, RWA has been incredibly supportive of LGBT romance, as they are. I mean, R- RWA. Is, so I, I love RWA. I always want to support them any way I can. So I'm definitely RWA. I'm definitely. Um, I'm going to be at Baltimore Book Fest in September. I'm going to be at Readers and Readers in November. I'll be at Coastal Magic in February. I love to. I love talking to fans. I love being. I love being with the readers. And frankly, I get most of my inspiration from kind of just casual conversations over like an egg McMuffin. And so <laughs> I love the opportunity to kind of engage and be with people. So yeah, I'm and I have a, if you go to my website, my website has an events page and I always list kind of panels that I'm giving workshops, I'm teaching other things. I love to teach. So too, I'm obviously a talker. So I love to get up and gab talk craft with people. Yeah, but it's also I mean, and I, I've been to a lot of conferences, well, a fair number of conferences, but um, I don't ask everyone who, who I um, attend their conference to be on the show, but yours was <laughs> really just so immediate, and it was, you know, it was light and entertaining to listen to, but it also had a lot of craft in there, and, and, right. and, and you know, I definitely took something away from that. So, yeah, my um, thing with the class is I always want to teach the class that I would want to take. I mean, we've all been in classes that we just, we snored through, or there were five good points, and then, like, you kind of check out. And my feeling is, look, you can't be all things to all people, but you can give enough mojo that people come away with something practical, useful, inspiring, whatever. So I'm always trying to teach the class that I – like if I was looking through a conference book, that's the class I would want to take. That's always my goal. Yeah, well – no, and I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, hopefully catching some of your other um, presentations if I can. Now, maybe you can tell people where they can find you online. Of course. Um, my website is damonsway.com. That's D-A-M-O-N-S-U-E-D-E.com. I'm also on Twitter as Damon Swade. I'm on Facebook as Damon Swade. My Facebook fan page is uh, it's damon.swade.author on Facebook. I'm on Goodreads uh, under Damon Swade. Pretty much, the, here's the nice thing. If you Google Damon Swade, you find me. There is no other Damon Swade. So pretty much everywhere uh, if you just type in the words Damon Swade, you'll find me everywhere that the social media spiders are. Um, and, of course, I have all those links on my website as well. Oh, great, great, great. Well, I'm very excited to hear about your new release, Your Romantic Suspense. So please make sure that you let me know when it's coming out. I will. I, like I will to, do. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I like to post on the Nice Girls Reading Naughty Books uh, Facebook fan page because people like to check out um, 
people that they've met through the show. So um, certainly let me know when that's coming up. And, and again, you know, I wish I had booked an extra hour because I, I have like no, no, 10 no, other thank questions you. I can ask wonderful. you. But you. Um, this has been really a great show, and maybe I can convince you to come on again. Anytime. You so. say the word. I'm yours. Okay. All right. Well, thanks again. Thanks so much. Thank um, you. Just want to remind everyone, I have Terry Michaels is going to be on my show on July 9th. And I'm taking a little bit of a break over the summer. I may try and schedule one or two other interviews. Um, so please check out the Nice Girls Reading Audiobooks Facebook fan page for some of those upcoming interviews. But in the archives, I counted it up this evening. I have over 70 interviews in the archives. And some of my prior guests were Kristen Higgins, Bianca Dark, Carly Phillips, Kat Johnson, some really, really great interviews. So please check those out. Um, also want to remind you about my new release, Friends Forever, is my latest release. It's women's fiction. And uh, sometimes your best friend can be your worst enemy. And it really is a great book about women's friendship. So please check that one out. And then also want to remind you that The Devlin Witch, book one, is free. It is, that is the first book in my four-book paranormal series about a family of sexy Irish witches. So please check that out. Again, you can get um, excerpts from all my books and see all my covers on my website, BernadetteWalsh.com. So thanks again for joining me. This is Bernadette Walsh, Nice Girls Reading Naughty Books. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.